Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today, we are honored to welcome Melanie to our show. Melanie is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and she's here to share her journey with us. Welcome, Melanie. We're so happy to have you today. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm happy to be here and ready to share my story. Awesome. So you're coming from us from the South, right? That's right. I'm in good old Georgia. Georgia's a mixed bag, right? Um, and lots of interesting <laughs> things going on down there. Um, oh, yeah. So why don't we start by talking about your upbringing first and how it sort of lended itself to this kind of abuse. You actually grew up in a cult. That's right. Yeah, so it was, I would say, a very strict Christian, holiness, non-denominational mixture. <laughs> um, interesting. Um, this man decided, you know, that he was a prophet or had a, a message that needed to be shared with the world and bought up some land in little Monroe, Georgia, and then had a congregation of people move there and live there and attend the church. And that was included my grandparents. My grandparents helped to build the place. Oh wow! So it, I would say it was a cult because I mean, at its heyday, they had their own grocery store, bank, currency, and they oh actually my. got in- holy yeah, shit. Yeah, they got investigated by the FBI once because somebody tried to use their currency out in public accidentally. I mean, nothing came of it. It wasn't a big deal. But they're just like, don't do that. Don't use that money <laughs> out here. <laughs> so, but yeah, so Monroe, Georgia, where is that in Georgia? Is it near Atlanta? So if you're looking at the map, it's sort of the halfway point between Atlanta and Athens. Okay. So how big of a, I mean, a community, I guess you could say this was, and and like both like mileage, he had to have bought quite a bit of land, right? To be able to start his own community. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, the exact acreage, but there were a handful of double wide trailers, modular homes placed on the land. And the closest members that were there from the beginning lived on the land and went to the church. And that included, you know, my grandparents and my parents, about four generations of my family. Wow. And um, yeah, and they, they all helped build it and he but he did grow from that to sort of international and yeah broadcasting his sermons on the radio and he got a little bit of a following across the ocean and I mean I don't know all of the exact places but sounds like a narcissist dream yeah I would say he was very the people the followers treated him in particular very high on the pedestal that's how I was saying and That's still true. do. Oh, so the it's so, still in existence today? Well, actually, he passed away. He died. But his followers, my grandparents, still very much 
sing his praises. Oh my gosh. And people that I grew up with would argue that it's not a cult and do not aren't fond of me talking about it in the way that I do sometimes. But I mean, it's it's my experience and my opinion, which I state clearly. How many people were a part of this? We'll just say community for um, lack of a better term. When it first started, it was in the hundreds. And then I, you know, it got up probably to the thousands with the um, international reach that he was mm-hmm. doing and growing into different states and areas. Today, it's probably in the tens or twenties. So when you were going up, were you around a lot of other kids? Yeah, there were a lot of kids there, but it was such a close knit group. So many people around us were really related to us in some way. And yeah, so it was difficult to eventually kind of have to start branching off (laughs) to Mm -hmm. find somebody to start a family with. So I think that's kind of what happened. So it, Sounds like you guys were fairly isolated. I'm guessing you're not going to school. Were you going to school outside of the commune? I started school there at the church. Um, it was lacking to say the least. Um, eventually my mom did move out and she placed me in a, a real school and it was determined that was I was significantly behind, especially in reading and writing. And so I went to a private, a little private Christian school for a while to get me caught up with my education. And we sort of went back and forth. I think my mom really struggled with that. She wanted us to have a good education, but wanted to have not have us exposed to the secular world too much. So we kind of jumped around from private to public to the church school. Yeah. So you said earlier that it was a very like strict culture within the cult. Can you expound on that a little bit? Was it like fear-based, shame-based? Extremely shame and fear-based. I mean, everything, it was highly focused around purity and holiness. So everything that you're doing is to represent God and, and any little slight mistake that you make could speaks badly on you as a person we're all inherently bad. So we're constantly trying to purify ourselves through God. And so, you know, I remember as a kid, I would be so upset because I forgot to brush my teeth. I'm like crying, praying to God, please forgive me because I made this mistake. You know, the the shame there is like, because you're a bad person, you forgot Mm -hmm. to brush your teeth. You know, that's simple. Mm -hmm. And that fear of you're going to die and go to hell if you're not a good person. So you're starting off bad and then constantly trying to achieve holiness so that you can be worthy of heaven. And yeah, so everything that we did from wearing pants to makeup, like that was not allowed. We wore long skirts, long sleeves, no makeup, long hair. You couldn't cut your hair no piercings. You know, I didn't get my first piercing until I was 18. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of stuff. We couldn't go out into the world and like movie theaters, bowling alleys. They wanted us to live in the world, but not of the world. So separate mm-hmm. yourselves from the secular world. That sounds yeah. like rhetoric that is probably was pounded into your head and you remember. <laughs> yeah. The phrases I'm using. Yeah. They're very specific to that kind of culture. And I think it's pretty, you know, pretty common actually for those kinds of things to be experienced in the Bible Belt. 
And I would say my experience is not too unfamiliar to a lot of people in the South, but maybe a little more extreme. So it sounds like an incredibly suffocating, exhausting, and probably terrifying upbringing. Yeah, absolutely. So much shame. And not to mention, gosh, not even to touch the subject of sex. You know, like that is like the most taboo topic. You can't talk about sex and you definitely don't have sex before you're married, much less think about it or talk about it or, you know, masturbation or pleasure or anything like that. And what a lot of people you don't understand, I actually, I was teaching at a church safety summit a few weeks ago with actually a fellow podcast guest, uh, Joelle Cassix, a few weeks ago, and she was trying to make them understand. It's like, I know you guys don't want to talk about sex and I'm not asking you to talk about sex. I'm really not. She's like, we're not asking you to talk to your kids about sex. We're asking you to talk to them about consent and when it's okay for someone to touch their body when it's not, because when you are too uncomfortable to talk to your kids about this, that makes them more vulnerable for abuse. And that's absolutely true. And I think that is a kind of a good segue into talking about, you know, the abuse that you suffered and what you went through and what that was like for you. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And I love, I listened to the episode with Joel and I loved everything that she said. Um, Yes, she is. I think that what I, what I would add onto it is that when you're having these totally natural feelings in your body, as you're growing and developing, you're also receiving the message that you're bad for having those feelings and that there's something wrong with you and you're sinful and you need to try to make yourself a better person by not having those feelings. And it's really confusing and shameful as a kid growing up in that sort of messaging where there's a lot of secrecy around sex and just normal human development. So that's one thing that I think makes it dangerous for kids is that you're getting this message that I'm having these feelings, they're happening to me and I'm bad for it. So of course, I'm not going to want to open up about it or talk to somebody if something is happening related to these sensations. But yeah, that played a major role in my own abuse as a child. I think that where I would start with this is when I was in, when I was around 11 or 12 years old is when my family started sort of breaking away from the cult. So my dad divorced and moved out and um, had his own family that he was starting. So anytime we would visit him on the weekends, me and my sister, it was sort of a respite, a break away from the really strict upbringing that we were used to. We could wear pants, we could go out and do fun things. And he was the fun, like freedom parent, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So when your dad left, so how long had it, was it his parents that helped to found the church? Like, had he been a part of this his entire life too? So was it kind of like all he had known as well? Yeah, Absolutely. Him and my mother met at the church. Both of my sets of grandparents, paternal and maternal, grew up in the church and helped to build the church. My dad's parents, they left earlier on than anybody else and went to their own Pentecostal, if anybody knows Pentecostal church, similar vein. So they kind of stayed in that culture, just not at the same location. Yeah. And, um, but my mother and that side, the maternal side of the family all stayed in it until it totally fell apart when I was about 16. Okay. So your dad left, he's kind of like the fun parent and 
you get to go there on the weekends and get a little break from the suffocation and strict rules. And so what happened? Well, I, it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly when it started, but, you know, and I was reflecting on it. I think it was like most cases, very slow and insidious and innocent, you know, interactions like cuddling with your dad in bed while you're watching movies and slowly the cuddling just gets more and more inappropriate. And then I can remember sensations and feelings of like laying near my dad and it just feeling wrong, like, but not knowing, being able to pinpoint what exactly was off. It was just an energy. And then there would be times where he would be like spooning me and, you know, pressing himself into my back, my back end and my butt and stuff like that. What I would say was like the very early phases. And then there was a time when he grabbed my hand and put it on his penis. And then, you know, so that was pretty jarring. (laughs) So like the jarring ones really stick out, of course. So, yeah. And it just sort of builds up from there. And I would say it's so hard to pinpoint all of the grooming behaviors, right? Because you don't know you're being groomed at the time. And another kid could be having their dad do the same exact thing to them. And it's not grooming because it could be innocent, which is what makes it so difficult, you know, to always figure out, especially for a child who would know, but even for adults who even, even adults who do know who are trying to keep an eye on things and make sure that everyone's safe. Like, you know, that's, that's part of the, the ugliness of grooming and and why they do it because it's easy to make excuses for it until it gets to that point where it does cross that line to no longer could this possibly be interpreted as a healthier. Okay. For instance, him having you touch his penis. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even I don't know, like, what was the line? When were certain interactions innocent? And when was it not so innocent, you know? And I don't know, maybe he didn't even recognize what that it was happening in the moment or until later. But I would say they're like a significant, like, there's always those like jarring moments where you're like, what is happening? Your body kind of goes into fight or flight mode. And those are the memories that really stick out, at least for me, Mm -hmm. you know, and everybody has a different response to this kind of trauma. But for for me, there were memories that stuck out like that my brain would replay and relive like flashbacks or randomly pop up into my mind or come up in my dreams. And one of those moments was when was a night that involved him taking me to his bedroom and removing all of my clothes and just like I'm just laying in his bed and he took off all my clothes and I feel like I was sort of in like a dream state or I was in shock and I didn't really know and then I suddenly snapped out of it and I jumped up and ran to my bedroom ran away and um and then he came back into my room like a minute later acting like nothing had happened and asking me what was wrong. And so like that was, while there nothing technically happened in that situation was one of the, when I say nothing technically happened, like there was not penetration or I didn't touch anybody and he didn't touch me. But um, that moment always stuck with me in my mind just because of how jarring and confusing it was. And he put 
the responsibility of it on you, you know, instead of as a parent coming and saying, Hey, what happened? I'm sorry. I do, you know, he said, well, what's wrong? Like what, what's wrong with you? What, what, why are you uncomfortable? This yeah. is normal. How old were you at this point? I was 12, 11 or 12. Cause it, it would have been back probably around 2003 or 2004 when it happened. And so did things just kind of continue to escalate from there? Um, so not long after that, actually, my dad ended up getting arrested and going to prison for unrelated charges. So things kind of, I think that they would have continued to get, get much worse or escalate from there if that hadn't happened. But my dad was placed on house arrest while he was awaiting his hearing. And we could only visit him at my grandmother's house where he was staying while he was on house arrest. And there were, there were a lot of moments, very sort of similar, some like dry humping and just uncomfortable and weird touching situations. But I think that because we were at his mom's house and not in his own house anymore, that kind of kept things railed in and he didn't feel as, as free to he didn't have as much freedom, really. Did you tell anyone at the time? Did you tell any other kids or any adults? No. Well, okay. So I did mention, I think I mentioned, like I dropped little hints to my cousins or to my sister. And I know that I did tell my sister and then that was, it was very upsetting for her, obviously. And she's younger than me. Yeah. Yeah. She's three years younger than me. So I ended up going back to her and telling her that I lied and I made it up because I felt bad for upsetting her. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. And after that, I never really told anybody. I think I like, I told a boyfriend when I was in high school and I was trying to get it off of my chest in Mm -hmm. ways carefully without exposing myself to too much shame. Let's delve into that a little bit right now, because I think it's an important message for people to hear why you didn't tell anyone. Everyone's always like, why didn't she tell her mom? Why didn't she tell her grandparents? Which is, it's also a shame-based question and definitely a victim-blaming question, which drives me crazy, but it makes it all the more important that people are educated about this and they understand the reason that kids don't. So can you talk Mm -hmm. about that a little bit? Why? I mean, it's hard, I'm sure now to remember, but do you know why it is that you didn't tell when you were 12 or 13 or even 14? Yeah, no, I remember clearly why, because I still, I deal with the the same problem still today. And it's that as a child who had no education about my body, no awareness about sex or pleasure or feelings that can possibly happen, I felt shame connected anytime I had that kind of sensation, even outside of this incident. So now here I am. It happened when I'm away from the church, a place where I'm, you know, protected and we're doing all the right things to be a good person. And now here I'm out in this secular place with my secular father. And I'm having these mm. sensations that are bad. And um, I did. I blame myself. Like mm. I said, that was something that I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> I was telling myself that I was a bad girl, that I wanted these feelings because they, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that it feels good to your body, even if you're repulsed mm. by it your body feels good. And so it's really confusing. And on the other hand, on the other side of that, you know, I didn't feel very connected to the adults in my life on the cult or at the religious 
place because there was so much pressure to be a good person. It felt it was difficult to have a close relationship to anybody. Everyone's constantly focused on making sure that they're perfect and that they don't have any shame. And, you know, you can't be vulnerable with people like that. And you have to be vulnerable to be able to connect and create a relationship. So I felt like I didn't even really have a relationship with my mom or or anybody. And then here I go to my dad's house and he's paying me attention and he's showing me affection and love. And this is what feels like attention and love to me that I have didn't have in the other setting. So it was like, of course I wanted it. I wanted this attention. And um, there was a part of me that liked it and wanted more. And so I felt shame about that. And I didn't want to tell for one, I didn't, I didn't want to get my dad in trouble. I didn't want him to go to jail or to lose that connection with him because it would be taken away from me and my little sister who loves, she's the daddy's girl. Mm -hmm. So I was worried for her and then our family and the shame that it would bring on our family in general. I was carrying all of the shame for everybody. Well, it's, it's so tough. I mean, even still today, it's tough, right? Like it's not, I think, and even I think with people who, and I think maybe, you know, your mom and your grandparents probably thought they were doing what was right for you all. It's not like they were taking you into a cult and thinking that, you know, we want her to be isolated and not be a normal functioning person and be able to get by in daily life and, and, and fill her heart and head with these ideas are going to cause her to, to terrorize her. I mean, essentially it is, it, it's, it's terror. It's terror for, for a long time. And it takes a lot to work through all of that because those messages become so ingrained in you that I, I assume it's still, even to this day at times you, you still have to work on it. Right. And I don't think that you're, you're the people who loved you and were trying to do right for you in your life had that idea for you going into it. But of course that is the unintended result, even with the best of intentions. Yeah. You always hear people talking about intention versus impact. And yeah, I can appreciate that for sure that they were trying to come from a good place and create a world that was safe. But I think that because it was built on fear and shame, it creates even for them, you know, I was, this was happening years before I was even born or thought of this foundation of shame that was being built up for people. And I'm talking now and trying to break down shame. And that's why I'm telling my story. And it's not, you're, you're right. It's not easy. And sometimes I still doubt myself and it's hard for me to say certain things, especially when it comes to the pleasure of, absolutely. um, yeah, like that, that's hard to talk about. That's just so honest and raw. And I really appreciate you feeling comfortable to talk about that here. Cause I know that that's something that a lot of people struggle with. And even the, the most seasoned speakers who talk about their experiences with abuse, we'll talk about how hard that is because it still goes back to all of that same shame is a powerful, powerful thing. And we'll, we're going to talk about it a little bit more in a couple minutes, but ugh, my goodness. So at some point though, I think as an adult, you did disclose out of fear for another sibling who was younger. Is that right? What happened with that? Yeah. So when I was 22 or 23, I have a half sister. That's my father and stepmother's daughter. And she's quite younger than me. We're about 10 years apart. 
she disclosed to me some behaviors that she was witnessing with our father that were very similar to what I experienced um, when I was her age. She's 12 when I'm 22. So what was that moment like when you realized that she was that he was engaging in that? I'm sure again, terror is the thought that comes to my mind. I imagine like you feeling it in your chest and your stomach just dropping. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can see that moment clear as day and it's surreal. Like people describe kind of leaving your body experience and watching it unfold in front of you like a movie. I knew in that moment I was going to have to say something to somebody. And that was what was the hardest for me because I had kept it secret for so long. And I had told myself when my, when I was younger and my dad ended up going to prison, I was like, oh, okay, great. This is sort of like my way of getting off the hook for having to tell anybody because now my dad's getting punished in a roundabout way. So I felt like it was taken care of. And now I, you know, I just put the secret behind me and move forward. You know, even though what he went to prison for was totally unrelated, my child mind locked it away that way. And I, maybe I, we already know the answer to this question, but so at the time this comes out, the fact that you had a relationship with your little, your youngest little sister, did you actually still have a relationship with your dad at that point? Like, was he in your life? Yeah. So at this point, our dad had gotten out of prison and was reestablishing himself. We were trying to rebuild our relationship with him. And he had been out maybe a year or two, not too, too long. So of course, we were trying to visit with him and build our relationship. So I was actually taking my little sister He lived in South Georgia, like six hours away. So she went and I were on a road trip together to go visit him. And that's when she told me, dad does this stuff. It's kind of weird. He acts. Yeah. And so she started telling me it's exactly things that I remember dad being like, you know, and he makes, he like, I have to stop you real quick though, Melanie, and just say, thank God that you could be that person for her that no one could be for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't thankful at the time. Sure. No. Oh God. No. You're like, no, why me? I'm sure. And it unleashed a whole host of things, but my goodness, looking back, I hope, I mean, sure you have, but I hope that you see that, that, you know, you didn't have anyone as a 12 year old that you could have talked to about it because of all those shame-based, anything related to sex messages that you've been taught your whole life. And, you know, this little girl knew that she could talk to you and that that's, that's big. So I'm sorry. Please no, that's true. I'm glad. Thank you for saying that because I, I don't, I haven't thought about that enough. I've, you know, I, it was a really difficult time of my life that I would say that's when things really started. I've really actually finally started my healing journey for real at that point. And as people, people who've, you know, survivors who've gone through this probably realize that first point, that beginning point of starting your healing journey is brutal. It's hard because you've been ignoring and just hiding from so much for so long. And then it just all hits you all at once. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So what did you do? So I, um, I held We stayed with my dad for that weekend and I just held that information and watched him like a hawk. And then we went back home and I had a therapy appointment that week when I was in there with my therapist, I told her what had happened and she sat with me while we made a police report. She really encouraged me and walked me through that filing a police report. And um, I probably wouldn't have done that 
if she hadn't been there to kind of make me do it. <laughs> Honestly, I knew it needed to be done, but it was just so hard and so terrifying. If I didn't have her holding my hand all the way, I don't think I would have been able to do it. And there were times I literally could not talk. I was just frozen in fear. And this is as an adult, right? And after you've yeah. been through, you you obviously were in therapy at the time. So you'd probably been going to therapy for a bit, I'm assuming. And, you know, yeah. even with all of the help and trying to work through all of it, I think that I just sure wish that people understood better how hard that call is even then. And especially when it's an intrafamilial type of situation, you yeah. know, it blows it all up. It does. And it's not you blowing it up. It's him blowing it up, but it's his actions that did this, but it sure as hell feels like it's you blowing it up when you're doing it. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of, that's a big part of me telling this story. I'm removing, this is like not my shame anymore. I'm not going to carry it around. Like it's my shame. And that was the first step in doing that was making that police report. Good for you. Gosh, how important. So you made the police report. Let's talk two things. What happened on that end with the authorities? And then we'll talk about what happened within your family, like the aftermath within your family after that happened. Yeah. So it was really uncomfortable talking to the authorities. I wouldn't say they didn't take it serious, but I was met sort of with, um, I'm trying to think of the word, not skepticism, it's more like, what are we supposed to do about this? Okay. <laughs> like, so what? Yeah. How many years out are we at this point? So how old are you when you reported? It's been 10 years. 10 years. So, so, you know, that's definitely, delayed disclosure is definitely something that we've had to deal with in, you know, within the law enforcement community and trying to better educate them and teach them how to do, because the investigation obviously looks markedly different when you've got a victim who's come forward 10 years out versus a victim who's currently being abused. There are different things you have to attend to, but also, you know, but there are ways to do it and a lot of places and sometimes the smaller ones, especially they don't know how that's why my goodness, when you see uh, the people who are doing it right, it's just so it makes me cry because I'm just so happy. You know, we're lucky here where we are in Indianapolis that the police department does a pretty good job. But you know, it's just a it's another harsh reality of this whole epidemic is the unfortunate and often lackluster response that we see from law enforcement, especially when you know, these, these investigations are not easy, even when they find out, like, even, I swear to God, even if they catch them in the act, it's still hard. Yeah. And that's another, I mean, th that just goes back to our bigger problem at all, which is what, how we as a society see this entire issue. But, you know, it's hard enough when they have lots of evidence that corroborates what happened. It's a hell of a lot harder 10 years down the road. And I'm, I'm not disputing that there are ways to do it. But because of that, you know, I think, shoot, what is the statistic that out of every 1,000, this is more toward adult victims, but every, out of every 1,000 rapists, only, I think maybe two ever see incarceration and it's only, and only like 900 of them aren't even reported. And this is why though, like, and this is why we're yeah. here doing this today. This is why we talk about these things, because if we don't talk about it, bad behavior thrives in the shadows and in the secrets. And so when we shine light on the topics, that's how things start to change both in the way that we talk about these things, but also in the way that the professionals and those around us perceive them and react to them. So that I'm sorry to hear that. That's unfortunate. But on the other end of things, like within your family, because, you know, you have a stepmother at that point, right? Who is yeah. mother to this child and you've got your, your other sister and the whole rest of the family. What happened within the family? 
Yeah. So after we made that report, my sister, who's three years younger than me, she's fully my full biological sister. She was actually living with my father at the time. So I kind of gave, right. We'll talk about this a little bit. You have your podcast together, right? You guys are, that's right. We do. We're close now. Back then things were, we've always been close, but it was, it was hard back then Mm -hmm. because she was living with him. She was really set on trying to reestablish a relationship with him. And she was excited about that because he'd been in prison. So I kind of like gave her a heads up that, you know, the police might be coming to talk to dad and he was on probation. So then they were worried about him getting a probation violation and having to go back to jail and all of this stuff. So that kind of created a rift. Like you created this problem for us. My sister, she's not going to have somewhere to live. My dad's going to have to go back into the system. So after that, there was a rift there. I went back to my my biological mother and I told her because I wanted her I wanted her to be the messenger to my stepmom on my half sister's behalf. Yeah. So that was smart. So that, that conversation was really hard telling her about it. And um, that was emotional. I think, you know, there was a lot of blaming herself, feeling sure. bad, like she didn't notice. And that's, that's something that I think, you know, she carries a lot of shame too, because she grew up in the same system that I grew up in. And I don't blame my mom for not seeing things or witnessing things. I blame the system that was created that we all grew up in, strict, extreme religious environments. They create these situations, not the individuals inside them. The individuals inside them are just trying to navigate the best they can. My mom was doing that. Well, you don't know better until you do, right? Like, you, yeah. If, if if that's all you've ever known, if that's all you've been taught, then that's how you think that the world is, and you're yeah. going to act accordingly, and you know, bring your own kids up accordingly. And so, you know, it, it's just as true maybe for your mom as it is for you and for all the rest of us that what happened to you is not your fault, but the healing is your responsibility. And yeah. I hope that that's been something that's been something she could do too, because I know it's a little bit harder to when you've been in it even that mm-hmm. much longer. So did your dad admit, did he deny, did it, did he continue to have unfettered access to your sister? So that, that action that I took really caused a rift in our family to where I didn't have much more communication with my half sister and my stepmom. I got my information sort of through the vine secondhand. My stepmom was apparently locking down on my sister's visitations with my dad and making sure they were more supervised. Mm -hmm. I don't really know my half-sister's reaction. We had that one weekend together and then things were totally different after that. Mm -hmm. And that has been really difficult, not knowing her perspective on everything and feeling like, you know, she likely feels like I ruined or tried to ruin her relationship with our father. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns still in just amends that have never been made. How and long I think ago was it that you is this a few years ago? That was when I was 23, 22, 23, so about gosh, going on 10 years again. Time goes by so fast. I know, I was saying that to someone the other day. I was like it used to drive me crazy when I was young and they're like, it goes by and I'm like, of nine. I'm like, oh man, they're right. It's true. It does. So at this point in time, you don't have any contact with them at all. 
Not really. No, I mean, no, no. And I, and I haven't wanna, talked to my dad in years. I don't want to go like, I don't want to go off on a tangent on this or go super far into it. Cause it's not totally relevant, but what your father had been in trouble for and had gone to prison for was, was stalking, wasn't it? Or something along those lines. So he was officially charged with criminal trespassing, battery, aggravated assault. He got into some fights with police officers. He impersonated a police officer. There's a lot. It's really ambiguous and vague and hard to say exactly. But he broke into somebody's home and was found hiding in their closet. So he never, no one ever directly stated that it was stalking. He never admitted to stalking anybody or anything. I have my suspicions. (laughs) But something um, he could probably easily explain away. That's what it sounds like to me. And that the people who want to believe him and who are, it's in their best interest to believe him. It's easy for him to like miss, you know, characterize everything that happened and make it seem like something it wasn't. That's like textbook for this type of offender. But I just wondered because, you know, they've already got some indication that he's got some bad behavior here. And so Mm -hmm. I just wondered if you thought that, played into whether or not they believed you like his parents do you have any contact with them or did it kind Um, of all create a rift I don't have much contact with his parents I will say my dad is a very charismatic person and a lot of people a lot of family members support and love him he's a lovable person I guess (laughs) so I don't know that they don't believe but they maybe just overlook or don't care because of how much they like him. That makes it, that's a whole other feeling when you're sitting yeah. on the other side of it. So we, we've talked a little bit about the part of the way of dismantling this type of thing is t- coming out and talking about it and being open about what happened and how carrying that burden and secrecy adds to the shame. And the shame is completely overbearing and take it can take over at times yeah yeah absolutely so you know you're you're doing great though you actually I think that it's lovely that you're a mental health counselor yourself so I just every time I see a person who has been through something like what you've been through and you know the sexual abuse in and of itself is one thing and awful and just absolutely horrendous but then oftentimes what in my experience with what I've seen and people I've spoken with the aftermath within a family can sometimes be every bit as bad as what you've already been through. And so when you take that and kind of foster it into this profession and and take your pain and abuse and shame and change it into something that helps other people, I just think it's so commendable and a beautiful thing. So why don't you talk about that a little bit, how you have went from, well, we're always still going through the process, but then helping others through like processes. Yeah, absolutely. So I did end up becoming a therapist. I'm a child and family therapist. and I worked with kids who have experienced sexual abuse. You know, it's close to my heart helping children in particular, likely because of, you know, my own, not likely. Yes, absolutely. Because (laughs) of my own experience, I want to be that person that, that is there making a child feel seen and heard and understood. At the end of the day, that's the most important thing to me is that my clients and the kids I work with have an adult in their life that can see them and provide them unconditional acceptance. And that's all that they need. 
It absolutely and that's all we ever wanted. It's absolutely the truth. I think that's awesome. And do you want to talk a little bit about, we've kind of, I've kind of stolen it on that from you as we've gone through, because I know this is an important message of yours too. We share that the importance of addressing sexual abuse and talking about it openly and the changes that will happen if we, I mean, will, they will happen if we actually do that with our kids. Yeah, absolutely. So it's so important to be open and transparent with children in general, but especially around topics that are difficult to talk about. (laughs) Because if it's difficult for you to talk about it, there's likely some shame or some fear around that. And, And we don't want to pass that on to kids. And also I'm changing that like the narrative that we want to send children is you are inherently good, not inherently bad. Sometimes you do things that are bad (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you can feel guilt about that. But shame is when you internalize that guilt and make it mean you're a bad person. You're not a bad person. You're inherently good. And, you know, having these conversations, if a child starts to become groomed or is violated in some way, they're less likely to see it as having something to do with them as being a bad person. And there's some less shame around opening up about it and talking about it. And if a child knows that there's a topic that's hard for you as an adult to talk about, they will try to protect you from that or they will interpret as it as shame on themselves. So, oh, mom feels uncomfortable when we talk about this topic. So that must mean something Mm -hmm. bad either about me or about her. They'll pick it up. Even if you're not outwardly saying the words, even if it's not their rhetoric that was pounded into your head as a child, they still pick it up. They're like, oh, you know, they read body language. They understand. And then they're going to associate it that way. Yeah, exactly. I think such an important concept is that of the distinction between guilt and shame. I, um, within my own healing journey, I've read a lot of Brene Brown. I'm guessing that you have too. And, um, her, uh, her research on shame and understanding those, the the difference between those two concepts is in learning to, you know, live with the shame and get past the shame is such an important lesson. I think for all of us, but especially for people who grew up within uh, an environment that was really you know, pounding the other things home. Um, is there anything else that you want to say you can think of that would be helpful for, you know, anyone, survivors, professionals working within the greater field of sexual abuse, loved ones of survivors? Um, I just want to say, you know, we all have our own different story and journey that we go on. When I look back on my story, I didn't, none of it is what I expected. I didn't think that you know, I would be a child being abused by her father. And then I didn't, you know, I didn't think that I would have to face that actually some point in my adult life. But at the end of the day, you are, there is always hope to come, to come through and work through whatever it is that is happening. And no matter the shame that people try to put on you, you don't have to carry that. And I think that's the biggest thing for me is that I've learned that I was keeping these things a secret because I was trying to protect my own shame, but also the shame of my family and my parents, my loved ones. And that's not my responsibility. The only shame that I can take care of is my own. And if I don't tend to it, it will fester and I will not be able to thrive and grow fully. And I think that's what I've seen with my father 
and other adults that are unable to address their shame. It holds you back. So you have to address it. Gosh, that's so poignant. And you just gave me chills. It's so important. And, um, you know, it's not your responsibility. It, it's yeah. not, it's not your responsibility to carry that all on your own. And that's what we're here to help with is to, to try to help you to help people understand that and to figure out that that burden should be on someone else's shoulders and not yours. Okay, Melanie, we end every show with the same three questions. Question one, what does courage mean to you? Courage to me is vulnerability. So being vulnerable to address those things that are hard, talk about those things that are hard to talk about. That is the biggest form of courage, in my opinion. Ain't that the truth? And that is spoken like a true mental health therapist right there. (laughs) Renee Uh, Brown. (laughs) She's so wonderful. Question two, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Um, I was once told by a nurse at an ER that where there is life, there is hope. So, and yeah, that was in response to a suicide attempt, no shame, (laughs) talking about unshaming. Um, She said, she told me where, as long as there's life, there's hope. And I think that's true. As long as you are alive, you can come back. You can come back from anything. It sounds like that was the exact person and right person to, you needed at that exact time in your life. So it's kind of neat that that's who was there for you. And you heard, Hmm. clearly she, you heard exactly what you needed to hear at that point. So that's, that's pretty, pretty awesome. Question three, what is one question that you wish more people would ask you? I think not just for me, but that we would all ask each other how that made you feel. And the way we try to understand are the feelings behind people's actions and try to really connect with the message behind what people are communicating. That is, that's a great, great question or great, great point. Okay. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having the courage to, and the vulnerability to share your journey with us and for all the help that you are giving to survivors every day in your practice channeling that hurt and shame that you've experienced into something positive is truly commendable. And I'm certainly grateful that you're doing that work. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me and giving me a platform to share my story. Oh, of course. And I didn't even tell anybody in this forgot because we were so into our conversation. Melanie and her sister have a podcast. You want to talk about that real quick, just so people can tune in and, and listen to what you guys are talking about. Yeah. So my sister who's three years younger than me. And I mentioned Um, we have the same mother and father, fully biological. We do a podcast together called Sisters Unashamed, where we talk about all kinds of stuff like this. Anything that we grew up made to feel ashamed of, we are just dissecting that and just tearing down walls of shame uh, one episode at a time. That's freaking amazing. I love it. And we, of course, will include the links to your podcast and our show notes and all your social media because I think you've got you guys have made the rounds you've got Instagram Facebook and TikTok I think so we will include those for our listeners and uh, to our listeners thank you so much as always for listening and submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com and we will see you next time